Our scripture reading this morning is from Genesis chapter 29. Please find Genesis chapter 29, and we'll be reading verses 28 to 35. Genesis 29, verses 28 to 35. This is, this is the word of our God. Jacob did so and completed, Jacob did so and completed her week and he gave him his daughter Rachel as his wife. Laban also gave his maid Bilhah to his daughter Rachel as her maid. So Jacob went into Rachel also and indeed he loved Rachel more than Leah and he served with Laban for another seven years. Now the Lord saw that Leah was unloved and he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Leah conceived and bore a son and named him Reuben, for she said, because the Lord has seen my affliction, surely now my husband will love me. Then she conceived again and bore a son and said, because, because the Lord has heard that I am unloved, he has therefore given me this son also. So she named him Simeon. She conceived again and bore a son and said, now this time my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore, he was named Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, this time I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she named him Judah. Then she stopped bearing. This is God's word. It stands forever. Continuing in our series the nuclear family, institutional, foundational, and historical. All of these are true about the nuclear family, especially when we look at historical. We see from the very beginning, for this cause a man shall leave his father and mother, and we'll see that that, and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall be one. We see that even quoted this morning in the Ephesians 5 passage, at which we will look at later. But a couple of points to be made from what John just read. Jacob finds himself in a bad spot. He finds himself with two wives. That's a bad spot. It was a bad spot for him. It was a bad spot for his wives. And what happens is, we find out that his wife Leah, who he had been apparently tricked into marrying before Rachel, the one that he really wanted, it's a tragic situation. He appears as if he would have been happy with just one wife. But then he finds out that he has two. What happens next? Well, we see that Leah is unloved. The scripture tells us. And that's an interesting way of saying it because it's said that first we see that, Rachel, that, that Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah, but then it says that Rachel or Leah was unloved. Well, obviously, if we're using superlatives here, he must have loved Leah, but he loved Rachel more. So he did love Leah, right? But why then does the scripture say that she was unloved? And I believe what the scripture is telling us here is that when there's two wives here and the, and, and the one is loved more than the other, 
my guess is that it feels like the one who is not loved as much feels like, it looks to her like she's unloved. That's not too hard for, to imagine, quite frankly. And we see later on, which we won't do this morning, but we see problems between the wives over the one husband. Never God's idea. But why do we read this passage here this morning? The title of our sermon is Husbands Love Your Wives. This is not made up by any pastor anywhere. This was given to us through the inspired word of God through the Apostle Paul. Husbands, love your wives. Notice this. And this is what this passage tells us. God notices it when a wife is unloved. We just saw that in the passage. That God noticed that Leah was unloved and he opened her womb. Husbands, this morning, if your wife is unloved... God knows this. Do you ever think about that? You might get it away with it before men. Perhaps even Jacob got away with it before men. Who knows? It might have looked the opposite. It might have looked like Leah was the one who was loved. After all, she's the one having the children. Rachel isn't. But God knew And he noticed. In our introduction, that's our first point. God notices when a wife is unloved, as we see in the case of Leah. Now, as we wrap up our series on the family, the remainder of our services, our sermons, will be, first of all, on husbands and fathers, secondly, on wives and mothers, and finally, on children. Now, again, I realize that not everybody is a husband, or a father. Not every woman is a wife or a mother. But the Bible speaks directly to these things, and so we must at some point. So the remainder of our, of our series here will be spent on fa- husbands, fathers, then mothers, wives, and finally children, and then we will wrap up our series with much done, I trust, but also with much undone. Now, as I wrap this up, or as we wrap this up, there's something that I, I, I need to say. And that is that we, we'll put it this way. When Paul says what he says, and we'll look at Ephesians 5 here in a moment, and we'll look what he says to husbands, later on we'll, we'll see what he says to wives in Ephesians 5. What's often said is that Paul simply reflected the culture. You've probably heard that from time to time. So whether Paul's talking about husbands loving wives, Wives being submissive to their own husbands, children obeying their parents, and even other things. For example, Paul talking about head coverings in in 1 Corinthians. What you often hear is that Paul reflected the culture. What does that mean when you translate that? Think about that for a second. Paul merely or simply reflected the culture. You know what that means? That means that Paul can be safely ignored. That's that's what that means. If we really want to know what Paul was saying, all we have to do is look at the culture. Paul was not a culture-reflecting guy. Anybody who gets beaten like five times, 39 stripes, 
shipwrecked. It was dangerous traveling with ships back then. Shipwrecked on occasion. Stoned at one point and left for dead. That is not going to be a culture-reflecting guy. The, guy. the people that reflected cultures in that day, if you had any kind of brains at all, if you were any kind of a speaker, which Paul was, he had brains, he was a speaker, he was a scholar, if he would have been a culture-reflecting guy, he could have had a fat job in a seminary someplace without any problems at all, quite frankly. So a guy that went through what he went through isn't out there just to reflect the culture. Can we put that nonsense away from us forevermore? Paul was not out there just reflecting the culture. It's one of those cute little excuses we have from time to time so we can ignore what the Word of God actually tells us. But let's talk about culture here for a second, shall we? From Alvin Schmidt, How Christianity Changed the World. What, what kind of culture was Paul speaking to at the time? Well, this wasn't exactly the case in Rome, what I'm about to say. But what I'm about to say is how widows were treated in India. And it's quite different from what we're going to see in a few minutes in Ephesians 5. Alvin Schmidt says this, he says, For hundreds of years, India's cultural custom of sati, the burning alive of widows, was an integral part of India's Hindu-oriented culture. When a woman's husband died, she, as a good and faithful wife, was expected voluntarily to mount her husband's fu funeral pyre and be cremated with him. If she refused, she was often put there by force, even by her own sons. If she managed to elude this pagan institution, her life and society was ruined. She was treated as a non-person, not just because she evaded the funeral pyre, but also because among the Hindus in India, a widow's life was culturally and religiously despised. Not infrequently, he goes on to say, as a result of India's child bride custom, a widow was burned while she was still a child between the ages of 5 and 15. In some instances, when widows were not burned alive, they were buried alive with their husbands. Nor, Schmidt goes on to say, was pagan India alone in burning widows. History shows that widows were once also burned in pre-Christian Scandinavia. Among the Chinese, the Finns, and the Maori of New Zealand, and by some American Indians before Columbus arrived. Now we may react to that, but why do we react to it? Why? Because we're better? No, because of the gospel. Because of what we're going to read this morning in the Word of God. And it's not just this. And I, I want to I burn this into our minds here this morning, that, that the Scriptures are not cultural reflecting um, treatises, if you will. They are cultural, they are culture transforming treatises. It's the Word of God that transforms this mess. And nothing else, by the way. Not Voltaire, not Christopher Hitchens. And I ask that 
to some of my friends from time to time, who is going to transform this mess that we just read? Who is going to teach the Hindus not to burn the widows anymore? Not today's professors in our state universities. They're going to say, that's their religion. If that's their religion, they can do it. That's their answer. My friends, it's only Jesus Christ and his word and his wonderful word that transforms this, this mess. And furthermore, speaking of culture, this is from John Payton. He talks about the, the condition of women. And he says this, he says, among the heathen in the New Hebrides, and especially on his island, Tana, women, uh, woman is the downtrodden slave of man. She is kept working hard and bears all the heavier burdens while he walks by her side with musket, club, or spear. If she offends him, he beats or abuses her at his pleasure. So you see in this island a, a man walking along with his wife, and he's got a club. You think, well, that's, uh, that's for the animals, or that's the protector. Think about it. His club or his spear is not to protect her. It's to attack her. Question for you this morning. Who is going to transform that mess? How's that going to happen? I can tell you how it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen apart from the Lord Jesus Christ and his law word. It's not. And without going into it too deeply, we always have to love our natural law friends who want to tell us that the biblical scriptures were for another time and place, etc., etc. Well, if you love natural law, you wouldn't have a problem with burning widows or clubbing them. It came quite natural to those people who didn't believe in Christ. It was natural law to them. Turn with me, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians 5. We'll start with verse 25. Husbands, love your wives. This is not the only place this is said. It's also said in Colossians. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. A couple things we want to see here. First of all, that phrase, as I mentioned, husbands love your wife, your wives, shows up again in the book of Colossians. In this passage, we see the active end of that. We see the actions that Paul wants 
a, a husband to take. In the Colossians passage, as we'll see in two weeks, we see sort of the passive way. In, the, in, the, in that case, Paul says, husbands love your wives and don't be bitter against them. In other words, this is, this is what you don't do. So the Ephesians passage is this is what you do. The Colossians passage is more what you don't do. I say, I say more. It's not exclusive, but that's how it is generally. Also, it's intriguing that Paul here is talking to husbands and wives. He's going to get to children here in a moment. But he sort of um, puts the husband's duty in the middle of the wife's, the wife's duty. Prior to ch- verse 25, we see the, um, the, the, the duty of the wife. So we see the duty of the wi- wives in verses 22 to th- 24. And then we also see it in the end of verse 33. So Paul rarely deals, sometimes he does, it's rare, but Paul really rarely deals with husbands alone or wives alone. Generally speaking, he deals with both, which makes sense. It takes two to make a family after all. There are four points that we want to make here this morning. From the Ephesians passage, we want to look at the example of love in verse 25. We want to see the explanation for love in verses 26 and 27. We'll see the extent of love in verses 28 and 29. And then in verses 30 through 33, we'll see the end of love. Now, when we talk about the example of love, what example would you use? Let's say... You're a missionary like John Payton. You're dodging cannibals. By the way, not everybody in the New Hebrides actually dodged the cannibals. Some lost their lives to the cannibals. It was difficult and challenging work. Some were chased off the islands by the cannibals. But if you were te- going to teach them, you see these horrible things happening to wives, you see them being sold for example, or the children being sold. You see wives being put to death at times by their husbands. This happened. And sometimes a husband would have more than one wife and he'd he'd kill them both and nothing would happen to him. There was no protection. If you're going to teach these people to love their wives, what, what example would you use? How would you even show them what love is? I can tell you how you wouldn't do it. You wouldn't do it like these creeps that we have running around today with their love is love bumper sticker. What are they talking about? Seriously, would you go to the New Hebrides where people are cannibals, they kill each other, they beat each other to death, their wives are treated like dirt, and you go up there with your little bumper sticker, your little sign says, well, love is love, figure it out. How foolish, how nonsensical. This is the world we live in, though. No, Paul is not going to do something that foolish. He's going to give an example. He's going to give an example of love. And what is that example? Verse 25, husbands love your wife just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. That's where Paul is going to start with an example of what love actually is. I don't think we have an idea of just how tough it would be to teach people what love is if they've never seen it. They've never known it. 
So that's why Paul uses a historical example, a real-life example. He's not coming at people saying, love your wives, you know, and, and be, because it's some kind of a ethereal, mystical thing that's somehow going to make you happy. It will make you happy, but that's not what Paul's talking about here. He's saying, love your wives just like Christ loved the church. Well, what did he do? Did he have, like, sit around and soft, nice feelings about the church? No, it's about what he did, not how he felt. And Paul's not talking about how Christ felt about the church. He's talking about what he did for the church. He gave his life for the church. I would challenge all of us. I was thinking about that this week. Think about it a lot. How would I teach people what love is without any examples? If I was running into people that didn't know anything about love, about sacrificial giving for the benefit of another, if I was talking to people that didn't know anything about that, what would I use for an example? And I frankly cannot think of any other example better than this. And every other example you can think of, I think, gets its impetus from what Paul's talking about here. So he's talking about loving wives to a culture of people that didn't love their wives, quite frankly. There's a lot that could be said about the Roman culture. But he, he starts with the example of love. Christ and the church, the example of love. Secondly, the explanation for love. And this we have to understand because even in Christian circles today, I think we miss this next point. We have all kinds of seminars and marriage enrichment week, weekends and so forth. Do we really get the ultimate purpose of marriage here? Is the ultimate purpose of marriage me and my happiness or is it something else? Well, I think we have the explanation here for love. Husbands loving your wife, verses 26 and 27. We have husbands love your wives, just like Christ did in verse 25. But 26, that he might, there's our purpose clause here, the explanation, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. That he might, there again, present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she should be holy and without blemish. So he's going on, really, in his explanation for love. Not only did Christ give his life for the church, but Paul's saying here he maintains his interest in the church. It would be wonderful that he died for the church. That would be wonderful. That is wonderful. But Paul's saying he's doing more. He is actively preserving his church. He is actively preserving his church from spot or wrinkle. I believe, without going into it too deeply, that an awful lot of our marriage counseling misses this point right here. That marriage, in the end, is a picture of Christ and his church. If, if we want to present marriage and family as the ultimate thing for me, begins and ends with me. The meaning of it begins and ends with me. If we do that, I believe we're missing the point entirely. Entirely. It's a little bit like shrinks, psychiatrists and psychologists and so forth. 
want to talk about human happiness and how to make you happy. Well, there's something to that, I suppose. But if we don't understand, like the, like the uh, confession says, that we glorify God, we enjoy him forever, if we don't get that, I think we'll just keep on chasing after that happiness and maybe just never even catch up with it, quite frankly. Why is it that marriages are failing so horribly, that husbands especially, failing? Why? Do we as husbands understand that we want to sanctify our wives like Christ sanctifies us? We want to protect her. We want to promote her well-being. She is an object of our affection and an object of our maintenance, maintenance. Husbands, is your, is your marriage on autopilot? Christ does not put the church on autopilot. He maintains the church of Jesus Christ. Number three, that's the explanation. We have the example of love. We have the explanation for love. And now we have the extent of love. Nourishing and cherishing. Verses 28 and 29. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. Here Paul's expanding on his idea of active maintenance of one's wife. Obviously. That's going to take things like adultery away. There's no way you can nourish and cherish your wife and watch porn at the same time. Can't be done. Cannot be done. So adultery's gone. Porn is gone here. We don't need a verse that tells us you can't watch. We, we do have it. Uh, Christ talking about that in the Sermon on the Mount. But you nourish and cherish your wife. So adultery, pornography, jokes, ribald jokes about one's wife, all these are out. You know, it's not that hard to tell who nourishes and cherishes his wife. I tell you what, you can be, you can be out there, and I've heard them, these, the, the, these disgusting jokes about one's wife. Well, I don't know what the inside of that household looks like, but it doesn't sound like nourishing and cherishing to me. Husbands, how are you doing with that? From John Chrysostom, the 5th century pastor, speaking of what Paul says, Husbands, says he, this is Chrysostom speaking, love your wives even as Christ also loved the church. You have seen the measure of obedience, here also the measure of love. Would you have your wife obedient to you as the church is to Christ? Take then yourself the same provident care for her as Christ takes for the church. How are we doing at that? The extent of love, nourishing, cherishing. Husbands, is your wife something to cherish? Or is your marriage on autopilot? If your marriage is on autopilot, get it off right now. 
And number four then, the end of love, verses 30 through 33. What's this about? And Paul is talking about purpose here again, verses 30 30 through 33. For we are members of his body. This is his wrap-up here, of his flesh and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself. Do you see in this passage how often Paul is comparing marriage to the church? Do you see it? I think it's impossible to miss, quite frankly. And what he's telling us today, here in 2023, my friends, is there is no way we can disparage our marriage, disparage the marriage. Am I saying that correctly, disparage? I didn't realize they rhymed. Disparage the marriage without disparaging the church of Jesus Christ at the same time. Do do you see that? Let me read that again. You cannot ignore your marriage without ignoring the church of Jesus Christ. Let's read that again. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and his bones. For this reason... A man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and two shall become flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. I'm not talking about necessarily your, your own happiness, necessarily. Yes, God's ways are always best, and God's ways are always ultimately happy. But Paul says that, that that's... That's something, that's a, that's a benefit that you get. The real reason why you are demonstrating love for your wife is to demonstrate to the others what it looks like for Christ to love his church. That's what you are doing, husbands, in your marriage. That's what you're doing. And Paul, it seems to me, couldn't be saying it any more clearly to us. I know that what I'm saying this morning runs counter to an awful lot of counseling going on out there. I get it. I understand it. But it seems to me that Paul is running counter here to an awful lot of what's going on out there. Paul, in this passage, do you see it? He cannot talk about marriage and family without comparing it to Jesus Christ and his church. And I find it rather telling, if you will. The day and age in which the church is ignored, the numbers keep on saying that less and less people attend church. The numbers are saying that if you're looking at them. Crazy numbers, big numbers. I've seen the number as high as 20 million since COVID. That sounds like a lot of people. But I think we all know people that don't attend church any longer. I find it intriguing that as we ignore church, At the same time, we're ignoring our families. The family is under attack. So is the church. And it appears as if that would not be a surprise to Paul at all. Paul would predict if the one goes, the other goes with it. From our passage here in Ephesians chapter 5. Well, we have the example of love. 
Christ in the church. We have the explanation for love, ultimately a glorious church. We have the extent of love, nourishing and cherishing. Then we have the end of love, members of the body of Christ. And, you know, Paul's very specific. I need to take a moment on that point. He could have just said, we are his body. But he didn't. You see there in verse 30, he gets very specific. We are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. Again, we've talked about this before. Christ has ascended to heaven. We have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit does not have flesh and bones. But we do have the body of Christ. We do have, says Paul, his flesh and his bones. We, we have them here now. It's people in his church. And it's shown in, contact, con, um, in context here by husbands loving their wives. And, as we will see, by wives respecting and submitting themselves to their husbands. That's pretty strong stuff. You can argue about how Christ is made known. You can argue about the life of Christ, Christ in you, the hope of glory. You can argue about how we show the world, you know, they'll know we are Christians by our love, etc. And Paul's saying it clearly here. This is evangelistic stuff. We're members of his, his flesh and his bones. And he's saying, if Christ is going to get things done on the earth, it's going to get done through the family here, through marriage. Not the only way, but definitely one way right here. Again, you can't ignore God's institution of marriage and not ignore his church at the same time. It, 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 it's a bundle. They come together. Well, as we wrap up here for application, a couple of questions here for husbands. First one, husbands, do you love your wife? How would you answer that question, say, on a test? Now, tests on paper don't get the job done, right? Ultimately, the Bible is, as we've said before, a do book, right? The Bible's not the book where you just answer on a test and get it right and you're all good. That's not how it works. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do the things I say? Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I'll liken to the one who built his house on a rock. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Not well said or well thought or well written. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. But let's say it was on a test, and you were asked for examples of how you know or how someone else would know, or most importantly, how would your wife know? as we'll say in a moment. Do you love your wife and how would you answer that question, say, on a test? And if you answer that question, say, in a test, you begin to write down how you know you love your wife. Would your wife be shocked at what she saw? Or would she be, would she recognize it? Husbands, do you love your wife? How would you answer that question, say, on a test for application? Number two, husbands, does your wife know that you love her? Okay, so you say, husband, that you love your wife. Good. Does your wife know it? Does she know? Or are you the only one that knows? 
I believe nourishing and cherishing has to do with two things, primarily. Sacrifice and intention. Again, you, you, you can't nourish and cherish on autopilot. I really want to get that point across here this morning. Yeah, how you doing today? Yeah, yeah, I had a nice day at work. Yeah, 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 what's for supper? Good night. No, it, it's active here. It's intention. And it is sacrificial. Number three, husbands, are you capable of teaching your wife? Look at verse 26. Check this out. That he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. Now, Paul here is saying that Christ does this for the church. I'll say, well, that's what Christ for the church. That doesn't apply to me. But it does apply to you, husbands, because it's in this context. This is where he's talking about that. Husbands, I want to ask, are you capable of teaching your wife? By example and by precept. Is that not how Christ teaches us? Through his Holy Spirit. Has he not taught us by example? We know it from the passage itself. He's taught us by example. And he has he not also taught us by precept. Husbands, have you ever taught your wife anything from the Bible? Something that you're learning? Something that could help her? I would encourage you to consider this. In this context, in this passage, we have Christ. The example of Christ. Who teaches. Who washes. Husbands, what about you? Finally then, from Chrysostom once again. His advice to young husbands in speaking with your wife. And this again, this is from the 5th century, so this, is, this has been around a while. Listen to what he says. He says, never speak to your wife in a mundane way, but with compliments, with respect, and with much love. <laughs> I think I'm already done reading. Never speak to your wife in a mundane way. Tell her that you tell her that you love her more than your own life because this present life is nothing and that your only hope is that the two of you pass through this life in such a way that in the world to come you will be united in perfect love. It sounds almost crazy, doesn't it? It almost sounds like pie in the sky by and by at some weekend retreat somewhere. But you remember, in the early centuries, the church of Jesus Christ was not pie in the sky. There was persecution. There was difficulty. There was challenge. He's not talking into the, into the air here. Say to her, Chrysostom goes on to say, our time here is brief and fleeting, but if we are pleasing to God, we can exchange this life for the kingdom to come. Then we will be perfectly one, both with Christ and with each other, and our pleasure will know no bounds. I value your love above all things, and nothing would be so bitter or painful to me as our being at odds with each other. Really? How many marriages today, how many folks today are at odds with each other and they've learned to have peace with that? How many marriages are, do, are, are, are doing that right now? They're under the same roof. They're at complete odds with each other. And they're okay. 
And Chrysostom says it's not okay, and neither does Paul here. You cannot be at odds, husbands, with your wife at the same time as you're nourishing and cherishing her. It can't be. And this next one, I, I, this is just great. Show her that you value her company and prefer being at home to being out at the marketplace. Esteem her in the presence of your friends and children. Praise and show admir admiration for her good acts. And if she ever does anything foolish, advise her patiently. Pray together at home and go to church. And when you come back home, let each ask the other the meaning of the readings and the prayers. If your marriage is like this, your perfection will rival the holiest of monks. I was speaking to someone from this congregation here this week. And we were talking about some of the things that I look at for as a pastor. I'm right now in the middle of trying to set up a system whereby I can visit everybody each year and an interactive system that I spent some time on that on, on Saturday here that where I can visit everyone and I hope I'm not getting too deep into the technical aspect of things back in the day before their computers just have a sign-up sheet. Now, now I need to be interactive, which if I can figure it out will be a lot better, will be good. But I was talking to someone this week, and, and I said, you know, one of the things I'd like to look at as a pastor, and one of the things I listen for, letting you in on my secret here, it's not really a secret, I, something I listen for when I'm talking to a husband and wife. Here's what I listen for. I like to hear it when I hear a husband or a wife say, yes, we were just talking about X, or we were just discussing Y. I tell you, I listen for that. If, if, I, if I hear that, and I know what's going on, then I, then I know that we have a means of nourishing and cherishing, right? Then I know, I, then I know that it, it's, it's probably happening. Husband and wife can talk to each other. And as a pastor, I just love hearing that because I think to myself, we probably don't have a problem here in this marriage. They can talk. And I will tell you, I listen for that. Now you know that particular secret. That's not all my secrets, but now you know one of them. I, I, I love to hear that the husband and wife discuss things. I, I just love hearing that. It's a, it's a wonderful thing. John Chrysostom saw the same thing back 1,500 years ago. Husbands, love your wives. Like Christ loved the church. And don't ever forget that your marriage is a picture to the world and to the church of what the love and attention and maintenance of Jesus Christ looks like. How else are they going to know? There may be other ways, but Paul chose this way to tell us. Shall we pray? We thank you, Lord, for this wonderful institution called marriage. What a gift! What a gift to us. We thank you for it. I pray, oh Lord God, I, I, I ask that every husband here would be a husband like what Paul is talking about here. One who nourishes, cherishes his wife, teaches her, speaks with her, hears her, encourages her. 
Oh, Lord God, may we be what you want us to be because we represent your love for us, what you did on Calvary for your people. It's in the name of Christ we pray it. Amen.